York, this is Democracy Now! Today, in fact, something we dreaded and hoped never to hear of again is threatened outright, the use of atomic weapons, which even after Hiroshima and Nagasaki continued wrongly to be produced. As Pope Francis calls again for peace in Ukraine, we look at how a letter by congressional progressives urging President Biden to push for peace talks created a firestorm on Capitol Hill. Within a day of sending the letter, the Congressional Progressive Caucus withdrew it. We'll get the latest. Then peace talks have begun in South Africa between the Ethiopian government and leaders from the Tigray region to end a devastating two-year conflict. This comes a week after the head of the World Health Organization issued a dire warning about Ethiopia's growing humanitarian crisis. This is a health crisis for six million people. And the world is not paying enough attention. There is a very narrow window now to prevent genocide. And as U.S. public health experts warn of a triple-demic of respiratory illness this winter, we'll speak with a pediatrician about why many hospitals are reportedly already filled to capacity with children. We are seeing in Houston and nationally a marked increase in pediatric admissions and infections with respiratory syncytial virus, also known as RSV. Um, This comes at an unfortunate time because influenza, particularly influenza A, also is spiking right now. RSV starts with mild cold symptoms and can be life-threatening in infants. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations is warning countries around the world are falling far short of their pledges to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, putting the world on course for catastrophic global heating. An assessment by the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change released on Wednesday found pledges by countries to slash emissions nearly in half by 2030 are far below that goal, with the world on track to see emissions rise by more than than 10 percent this decade. Without a change in course, the U.N. warns the planet's on track to see an average temperature rise of up to 2.9 degrees Celsius, of more than 5 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke with the BBC Wednesday less than two weeks before the COP27 U.N. climate summit opens in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Climate change is the crisis of our lifetime, is the defining issue of today's world. So climate change remains a central priority in everything we do. If we are not able to reverse the present trend that is leading to a catastrophe in the world, we will be doomed. Democracy Now! will be in Sharm el-Sheikh, broadcasting live from the UN Climate Summit. The U.N. also issued a warning Wednesday over the three greenhouse gases that contribute most to global heating. Atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide all hit record levels this year. Methane saw its biggest year-over-year increase. Meanwhile, a new report in the British medical journal Lancet finds efforts to mitigate climate change can still deliver a future where people can not only survive but thrive. The report's lead author, Dr. Marina Romanello, said in a statement, quote, There is clear evidence that immediate action could still save the lives of millions with a rapid shift to clean energy and energy efficiency. 
The Nigerian Medical Association is raising alarm about the spread of waterborne diseases in Nigeria after historic flooding killed over 600 people and left over 200,000 homes partially or completely destroyed. Aid groups say the flooding has led to a major increase in cholera cases and other preventable diseases like diarrhea and typhoid fever. Survivors are growing increasingly angry over Nigerian authorities' response to the flooding, which has displaced about a million and a half people. My house is flooded. Uh, my community is flooded. People are suffering. No drinking water. No light. In fact, it's a terrible situation. Ukraine's government says it's discovered the bodies of nearly a thousand civilians and soldiers buried in territories recaptured from Russia by a Ukrainian counteroffensive. About half the bodies were discovered in a mass grave in Izium in Ukraine's northeastern Kharkiv region. Overnight, Russia's military carried out fresh attacks on power plants, this time in central Ukraine. In southern Ukraine, officials in the Russian-occupied Kherson region say more than 70,000 people have evacuated their homes ahead of a looming battle for control over Kherson city. Meanwhile, Ukraine has deployed more of its forces near its border with Belarus, a key Russian ally. In Iran, a mass shooting at a Shia shrine in the southern city of Shiraz killed 15 people, injured another 40 on Wednesday. Islamic State has claimed responsibility for the attack. This is a survivor of the massacre. They chased me, and I was shot in the back, and three people died next to me. When they attacked and started shooting, I laid down on the floor, and they thought I was dead. They killed three people near me, but I managed to escape with my life. The deadly attack came as massive protests rocked Tehran and other parts of Iran, as people marked 40 days since the death of 22-year-old Masamini in police custody. Also Wednesday, the Biden administration imposed sanctions on 14 Iranian officials over the regime's brutal suppression of protests. In Georgia, another woman has come forward to claim anti-abortion. Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker pressured her into having an abortion. The unidentified woman said it happened in the 90s when they were dating and that Walker drove her to a clinic to have the procedure. On Wednesday, lawyer Gloria Allred spoke to press about her client's allegations and played audio tape of the woman. Herschel Walker is a hypocrite, and he is not fit to be a U.S. senator. We don't need people in the U.S. Senate who profess one thing and do another. Herschel Walker says he is against women having abortions, but he pressured me to have one. This comes as Georgians have turned out in record numbers for early voting. Nearly 60 percent more voters have already cast ballots. And at this point in 2018's midterms, data also show a higher proportion of black and older voters in Pennsylvania. Democratic Representative Mike Doyle announced Wednesday he's retiring from Congress, a year after he first revealed he would not seek re-election. Congressmember Doyle told reporters, quote, I feel an obligation to make sure that people understand that my term expires at the end of the year, that I am not seeking re-election, but there is someone that has the same name as me on the ballot, unquote. He's referring to Republican Mike Doyle, a city councilor in a Pittsburgh suburb who's seeking to replace Congressmember Mike Doyle. 
He's denied he's seeking to deceive voters into voting for him based on name recognition, though his campaign literature makes few references to his party affiliation. He faces Democratic nominee Summer Lee, a Pennsylvania state representative who has the backing of the Democratic Socialists of America and progressives, including Senator Bernie Sanders and Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In Arizona, police are investigating a burglary at the Phoenix campaign headquarters of Democratic gubernatorial candidate Katie Hobbs. No suspects have been identified, but Hobbs' campaign has released images from a surveillance video showing an unauthorized person entering the building overnight on Monday. Hobbs currently serves as Arizona's Secretary of State. As of Monday, she'd reported a half-dozen voter intimidation complaints near ballot drop boxes to police, including armed people wearing masks and tactical gear. Hobbs has reportedly received hundreds of death threats and threats of violence over the course of her campaign. Tune into Democracy Now! on November 8th for a three-hour election night special. We'll be broadcasting live starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. A judge has ordered former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to testify before the Georgia grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Meadows is believed to have set up and taken part in the Trump phone call on January 2, 2021, in which Trump pressured Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find nearly 12,000 votes that would make Trump win the state over Joe Biden. A jury in Michigan convicted three men of providing material support for a terrorist act and other charges in the plot to kidnap Democratic Governor Governor um, Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. Prosecutors say the men belong to the militia group Wolverine Watchmen. Paul Beller, Joseph Morrison and Pete Musico will be sentenced in December. In Ohio, right-wing conspiracy theorists Jacob Wall and Jack Berkman pleaded guilty this week to placing thousands of robocalls spreading misinformation about voting in the lead-up to the 2020 elections. The calls targeted Democratic and voters of color in Cleveland, falsely claiming election officials would use vote-by-mail information to arrest or collect overdue debts from voters, and, and that the CDC would use their personal information in a mandatory vaccination program. The robocalls also went out to voters in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia and New York. Elon Musk is nearing a deal to purchase Twitter for $44 billion. This week, Twitter employees circulated an open letter protesting reports Musk is planning to slash the company's workforce by 75 percent. Musk reportedly denied the reports Wednesday during a meeting with employees at Twitter's headquarters in San Francisco. Earlier this year, he suggested he'll allow Donald Trump to reactivate his Twitter account, which the company suspended after the January 6th insurrection. In Pennsylvania, Lawyers for political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal have asked a judge for a new trial based on new evidence that cast doubt on his 1982 conviction for the murder of police officer Daniel Faulkner. Lawyers for the former Black Panther and journalist said evidence and boxes discovered in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office showed his trial was tainted by racist jury selection and that one of two key witnesses sent prosecutors requests for, quote, the money owed to me. 
The judge said she intends to dismiss the request and set a new hearing in December. Faulkner's widow, Maureen Faulkner, was at the hearing. She also attended Monday's debate between candidates for Pennsylvania's open Senate seat, where Republican Mehmet Oz mentioned her by name. And in Haiti, well-known investigative journalist Robertson France is hospitalized in stable condition after being attacked by gunmen Tuesday in Port-au-Prince. Alphonse works at the daily newspaper Le Noveliste and the radio station Magic 9. Also on Tuesday, a journalist who had gone missing was found dead. Gary Tess previously hosted a political talk show in the southern city of Lecaille. The Inter-American Press Association said this year has been one of the deadliest on record for members of the press. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at the war in Ukraine and a controversy on Capitol Hill over a call for Biden to push for talks to end the Ukraine war. On Monday, the Congressional Progressive Caucus sent a letter to the White House, which urged the Biden administration to pursue direct negotiations with Russia for a ceasefire in Ukraine while continuing to arm the Ukrainian military. The letter, which was signed by 30 Democrats, stated in part, quote, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. This is consistent with your recognition that there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement here, and your concern that Vladimir Putin doesn't have a way out right now, and I'm trying to figure out what we do about that, unquote. The release of the letter was soon attacked by other Democrats. Democratic Congress member Jake Oshenklaas of Massachusetts called it a, quote, olive branch to a war criminal who's losing his war, unquote. Within a day, the Congressional Progressive Caucus withdrew the letter. Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal issued a statement saying, quote, the letter was drafted several months ago, but unfortunately was released by staff without vetting because of the timing or messages being conflated by some as being equivalent to the recent statement by Republican leader McCarthy threatening an end to aid to Ukraine if Republicans take over, unquote. Last week, Kevin McCarthy warned Republicans won't give Ukraine a, quote, blank check if the GOP can regain control of Congress. While Jayapal withdrew the letter, some progressive lawmakers have defended the letter's message, like Congressmember Rokana, who appeared on CNN Wednesday. I have supported every package of giving aid to Ukraine, and I plan to support continuing to arm Ukraine. All the letter said is that we, at the same time that we stand with Ukraine, need to make sure that we're reducing the risk for nuclear war, that we're engaging in talks with the Russians to make sure that the conflict doesn't escalate. We need to support Ukraine with arms and we need diplomacy. That's common sense. This all comes as fears grow that the war in Ukraine may turn nuclear. On Wednesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin oversaw annual drills of Russia's strategic nuclear forces. Meanwhile, Politico reports the United States has moved up plans to deploy upgraded nuclear weapons to Europe. To talk more about the controversy around the Congressional Progressive Caucus's letter and what U.S. diplomatic efforts could entail, we're joined by Phyllis Bennis, author and fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, her recent piece for the Progressive is headlined, It's Time for Diplomacy. Phyllis, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you lay out what happened 
Talk about the content of this letter, the fact that 30 Congress members signed on. It was released, then retracted. Well, you know, Amy, what happened was very much reflected in, in Ro Khanna's statement just now. The letter was a very carefully drawn, mild letter that was very important because there had not been a, an official congressional statement urging the Biden administration to call for diplomacy. On the contrary, we've seen significant evidence that the administration has really not supported the idea of moving towards a diplomatic uh, approach in Ukraine, along with the military aid that they're providing, despite the fact that there have been statements from President Biden and others that this war, like all wars, will end with some kind of diplomacy. The issue is always at what cost and after how long. Are we going to wait until this war becomes a longstanding war of attrition? or with all of the additional deaths that that could lead to? Or are we going to say there needs to be a diplomatic component right away? Some of us, myself included, have been saying right from the beginning, my first piece on the, uh, on, on the war that was drafted just a day after the, the, the illegal Russian invasion, recognized that there was going to have to be a ceasefire then. There needed to be a ceasefire on day one, a ceasefire when Russia was succeeding in pulling in uh, more territory in, to itself. It needed a ceasefire when the Ukrainians were able to seize the offensive and take back some of that territory. And we need a ceasefire now. So this letter was actually a very cautiously, mildly drafted letter that said, as, as Ro Khanna said, and as you indicated in reading it, that we need an additional component of policy in Ukraine that needs to include a ceasefire and diplomacy. The, the level of outrage that greeted this very careful, you know, sort of common sense approach shows us how much work is still needed by our movement and more broadly in society to stop the kind of, of control that militarism seems to have on our assumptions about what foreign policy looks like. The notion that this could be solely a situation where the U.S. continues to send tens of billions of dollars with all of the weapons that are ever required by Ukraine, to what end? What's the end game here? Those are not the questions, unfortunately, that are being asked. Instead, it was, you know, the focus has been on the timing and did it, did the, uh, did the, the, um, uh, did the letter match the position of the Republicans, which of course it didn't, but that isn't really the important part. The important part is to look at the need for a ceasefire and diplomacy to end the war in Ukraine. So, Phyllis, as you said, because the, the letter was, uh, in some sense, quite mild, what do you think accounts for the fact that more conservative or mainstream Democrats uh, responded with such vehemence? And what about this one uh, uh, brief clause uh, in the letter that said that Putin at the moment, Russia at the moment, does not have a way out, he needs to be given a way out? What exactly uh, would that mean? Well, I think it, it means a series of steps. The first step in any of these situations is you need a ceasefire. A ceasefire is not sufficient. A ceasefire is not a guarantee that you're going to be able to end the war in a just way anytime soon. But it sets the stage that you can begin the process of negotiations. And I think what the letter was referring to in that point was that the, there have been public and private, from what we understand, 
uh, positions taken by the U.S. administration, and, and it's certainly been true in Congress and in much of the mass media in this country, that says there is no room for diplomacy here, that this is going to be a war that is ended with a great Ukrainian victory. It's going to be, you know, one imagines that there is this sense it's going to be like World War II, where the war ends with a complete surrender and a flag raising and some band is playing hail to some chief and everybody will be happy. It's not going to work that way. I think everybody acknowledges that who's serious about examining both the the political and the military realities of this war, that there's going to have to be some kind of diplomacy. That doesn't mean that the United States, despite the fact that the U.S. is providing such enormous amounts of money and arms uh, to Ukraine for its resistance, that doesn't mean that the U.S. has the right to tell the Ukrainians how they should how they should engage in diplomacy, what they should concede, if anything. But it does mean that we cannot pretend that while providing $65 billion so far, overwhelmingly for the military, not quite all of it, but most of it, with another $50 billion under discussion now in Congress, and all of these weapons, all of this training, that we can then also simultaneously stand back and act like a, a cheerleader that's not connected to the war that's underway. The U.S. has significant issues of diplomacy that need to be raised with Russia that do not depend on what the Ukrainian decisions are about their diplomacy with Russia. The U.S. needs to be negotiating with Russia about reopening all of these abandoned nuclear and conventional arms treaties that right now pretty much don't exist at all. It makes everything much more dangerous. The U.S. needs to be negotiating with Russia on the question of what are the consequences of building a new U.S. military base in Poland less than 100 miles from the Russian border? I mean, talk about provocation. This is quite serious, and there needs to be some discussion about that. These are things that the U.S. can be negotiating with Russia that don't go to the Ukrainian position, making clear to Russia that when there is a ceasefire, the U.S.-imposed sanctions will begin to be lifted is crucial because without that, there's no real incentive for Russia, just, you know, while the while the sanctions are in place. I assume that they are looking to the precedent the U.S. set in Iraq when it made very clear at the United Nations that at a certain point it didn't matter whether Saddam Hussein allowed in the U.N. inspectors or not. The sanctions were simply not going to be lifted anyway. That took away any incentive that the sanctions may ever have had to encourage a change in behavior. There needs to be U.S.-Russian negotiations on all of those issues, which are not dependent on the views of Ukraine, which, of course, are crucial in determining the nature of the longstanding need for dip real diplomacy to end this war. But first, there needs to be a ceasefire to allow all that to go forward. So, Phyllis, let's just talk about what attempts, uh, if any uh, uh, significant ones, there have been to reach a ceasefire, either initiated by the Europeans. It's Macron in France who has sustained conversation uh, with the Russians uh, since the invasion and, and even prior to it. Uh, 
Just this past weekend, uh, uh, Austin, Lloyd Austin, had conversations with his Russian counterpart, although no details were released of their conversation. Uh, the one uh, uh, thing that was told about uh, uh, the conversation, the one uh, detail that was revealed, is that Austin reportedly emphasized the importance of maintaining lines of communication lines of communication between uh, Russia and the U.S. Their conversation was the first in several months. Uh, in May, they spoke. Uh, May was the last time they spoke. And again, reportedly, uh, the U.S. did press for a ceasefire, uh, which the Russians rejected on the grounds that the U.S. is not willing to talk to the Russians as equals. Uh, in talks with NATO countries, uh, uh, Turkey, France and Britain, uh, who to varying degrees have urged a ceasefire, Russia has been unwilling uh, to budge. These are according to news reports uh, in Europe as, as well as here. So your, your response to that, how can pressure be yeah. brought to bear on Russia, which is, of course, the uh, aggressor in this war? Russia is indeed the aggressor in this war on the ground. There is a question of the larger, longer-lasting geopolitical war that's underway that goes back many, many years in which the U.S. and NATO have played a very provocative role against Russia. But there is no question that none of those provocations justified any of the Russian moves. Uh, this is Russian aggression, pure and simple. I think there are reports that have other uh, views as well that indicate both British and uh, perhaps other uh, NATO reports about indications that there is not support for a ceasefire coming from NATO and, and the US, other U.S. allies. I think that the fact that all of these reports are based on evidence of discussions with, with diplomats and with others that are not identified, that can't be confirmed, it makes it very difficult to know, is there actually support among uh, NATO leaders for a ceasefire or not. There were certainly reports about the role of Boris Johnson going to uh, to meet with, Zel with President Zelensky and urging him not to consider a ceasefire. Uh, I don't think that Zelensky is necessarily uh, getting only one position from his allies. He is, of course, completely dependent on NATO and particularly on the United States for both economic and military support. Uh, but I think that the question needs to be raised to our own government, which is playing such a crucial role in this war, about the need to support uh, a ceasefire immediately and longer-term negotiations to end the war. The meetings that you referenced between the, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and his Russian counterpart was very important, not meeting a telephone call, uh, because there had not been communication since last May. And that makes things particularly dangerous on the question of the potential escalation to a nuclear exchange, which is what makes the war in Ukraine so incredibly dangerous, so much more dangerous globally than any of the horrific wars we've seen over the last 20 years, more than the war in Iraq, more than the war in Afghanistan, despite the horrific level of destruction that was wrought in those countries by the U.S. invasions and occupations. Those wars never threatened to erupt into a global, a globally impactful uh, uh, nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia, which together, of course, control 90% of the nuclear weapons in the world. In the situation of Ukraine, that's very different. There is a threat of that kind of escalation. Uh, 
And what we don't have in Ukraine right now is what the U.S. speaks of as a deconfliction line, which basically means a direct line of communication, uh, a hotline telephone, whether by computer of whatever form, that we did have, for example, in Syria, when you had a history of the U.S. and Russia supporting proxy forces on opposite sides. And they made sure that while they neither Russia in Aleppo or the United States in Raqqa, for instance, where those two cities were destroyed by the two global powers, the U.S. and Russia didn't care very much whether they killed enormous numbers of uh, Syrian civilians, which they did with their bombing in those two cities. But they were both very concerned about not killing the other side. The U.S. did not want to kill any Russian soldiers. The Russians were just as concerned that they not kill any U.S soldiers or pilots or whatever. And as a result, they had a direct means of communication to call off any mistaken escalation and to warn the other side when they were planning to bomb in a certain area, saying, we're going to bomb in X place, get your people out of there. And it worked. We don't have that in Ukraine. And that means things are much more dangerous in terms of a potential escalation, maybe with neither side actually intending to use a nuclear weapon. And right now, I don't see any evidence that either Putin nor President Biden have any intention of using nuclear weapons. But the fact that there have been these statements from Russia that seem to imply pretty directly a nuclear threat, as well as potentially a threat of the use of other non-conventional weapons, chemical, nuclear, whatever, uh, or or, uh, biological. And for the U.S., of course, a very provocative move sending a hundred upgraded versions of one of the most commonly deployed uh, nuclear weapons in Europe. There are now, of course, five countries in Europe, NATO members, that are holding U.S. nuclear weapons under U.S. control in their territory. They now are being upgraded. That's a deliberate nuclear escalation. That's a deliberate nuclear threat. So the threats are coming from both sides. I don't believe either president has any intention of using a nuclear weapon. But when there are nuclear weapons involved, until they are abolished, when they are involved in this theater of war and the two nuclear powers are directly engaged, the threat of a nuclear escalation is dramatic, no matter how small it is. If it's anything other than zero, if it's anything other than zero, that's way too high a risk to take. And Phyllis, we only have uh, 30 seconds now, but next month, uh, Biden and Putin are both scheduled to attend the G20 meeting in Bali. Do you have any hope that there could be some communication between the two there? We have to hope, of course. There needs to be that kind of communication, whether it's between the two leaders, which, of course, would be very visible and the, the world's press would be watching, or whether it's at a lower level of assistance of aides meeting to say, okay, on these basis, we will meet. There needs to be that kind of discussion for a ceasefire immediately and negotiations to end this horrific war, to stop the killing of Ukrainian civilians, stop the destruction of the country, the destruction of these cities. The impact of this war on the globe you know, as a whole, not only in, in Ukraine, environmentally, in, in terms of of of, uh, the threat of famine as a result, the militarization of Europe and in so much of the rest of the world as a result of this war demands that there be a move towards an immediate ceasefire 
and a move towards diplomacy. Phyllis, uh, before you go, just one question. As a person who's written a number of books on Israel-Palestine, a keen observer of the region, about the growing crisis in the occupied West Bank, Israel is continuing to carry out daily military raids. At least 120 Palestinians have been killed so far this year, making it the deadliest year in the West Bank since 2015. On Wednesday, President Biden met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog at the White House during public remarks neither mentioned Palestinians, the occupied West Bank or Gaza. Your quick response. This has been an outrage that this level of killing on a daily basis raids into Palestinian cities, which officially, if you want to go back to the Oslo Accords, are ostensibly under complete Palestinian control. There is no Palestinian control. It is completely under Israeli assault with the, the attacks on children, uh, on, on civilians, of whom there have been, I believe, the number is up to 30 children among them who have been killed. Uh, the arrests, the raids of, uh, of civilian homes, particularly in the middle of the night with children being taken off for interrogation, deliberately aimed at undermining the ability of Palestinian families to survive. It's a horrific situation. The U.S. has had nothing to say about it, despite continuing to provide $3.8 billion a year directly to the Israeli military. And the fact that we are not even hearing any discussion of this in Congress, in the White House, in the mainstream press, is a travesty for our country. And it has to be dealt with in a much more overt way. There has to be a change to acknowledge that U.S. support for Israeli apartheid and occupation is what enables these raids to go on with impunity. The problem of impunity is the, is the core of this issue. And hopefully the United Nations and other parts of the international community, the International Criminal Court, the international uh, special investigation team that is now looking at these at these violations of international law, that that's where we will be able to look to for uh, for for an end to this kind of Israeli impunity. Phyllis Bennis, want to thank you for being with us, author and fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. Up next, amidst Ethiopia's growing humanitarian crisis, peace talks have begun. Um, the government and leaders from the Tigray region to end the devastating two-year conflict. Back in 30 seconds. Tora is singing Free Mumi Abu-Jamal now at a Philadelphia rally Wednesday outside the courthouse, calling for the release of the 68-year-old journalist and former Black Panther. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We turn now to look at the crisis in Ethiopia. Peace talks between Ethiopia's government and rebel forces in Tigray began earlier this week in South Africa. The African Union is mediating the talks, which are aimed at ending a devastating conflict that began two years ago. Hundreds of thousands have been killed in the brutal war. One analyst estimates the death toll could be as high as 800,000 people. Millions have been displaced, hundreds of thousands facing famine. Last week, the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who is from the Tigray region, warned time is running out to address the humanitarian crisis. This is a health crisis for six million people.
and the world is not paying enough attention. I urge the international community and the media to give this crisis the attention it deserves. There is a very narrow window now to prevent genocide. Joining us from Germany is Tadala Lama. She is a journalist and founder of Out of Standard, an English-language monthly magazine based in Ethiopia. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Tzadala, uh, can you talk about the significance of these peace talks that are taking place outside of Ethiopia, in South Africa, and what's happening in the Tigray region? Thank you, Emmy. Good morning. Um, the significance of this peace talk is such that this is the first time at high level that the two parties are having an open and public face-to-face uh, -face meeting to try to solve the problem that uh, ran for the last two years. We have not had that. There have been some secretive talks between the two that were happening, but they all collapsed. So the significance is such that um, uh, is that this is the first time happening in two years with all involvement of the international community at uh, diplomatic efforts. That is how significant it is. And it's also significant because on the ground, people are dying in tens every day. Tigray is literally being decimated as we watch. So the significance cannot be undermined at the moment. And uh, could you explain the, the importance of the African Union uh, mediating these talks? Nermin, uh, I, I would really, uh, there's a lot of reservation about the African Union being uh, in charge of these peace talks. For one thing, it has done nothing for the last two years, despite it being headquartered in Addis Ababa, the epicenter itself of a country uh, for this war. It has done really nothing for the last two years. But uh, it's important to notice that it is now being assisted by other stakeholders, most importantly, IGAD, uh, the, the Intergovernmental Agency for, for in Africa, and also the U.S. government. So this combined effort could yield a result. But the African Union in and of itself has proved to be a total failure in stopping this war. Can you talk about who the parties are at the table and what's at stake? Um, the parties at the table are the federal government uh, of, of Ethiopia and the Tigray uh, government, which is a regional state in Ethiopia and the north of Ethiopia. So authorities from the Tigray government, led by Getacho Reda, to my understanding, who is the spokesperson of the president of Tigray and regional state. Um, and the federal government is represented by a few people, among them the attorney general and, uh, and, and the, the security advisor of the prime minister. So the warring parties are the two that are now on the negotiation table. What is at stake um, is uh, um, a lot. Uh, we, we are waiting for what the two parties are, are going to come out with at the end of, of, of the day. Uh, but we know that what the Tigran authorities want from this negotiation as a result or 
Pistok. As a result, they want an immediate cessation of hostilities to this war, which would be two years next next um, week. Uh, they want an unfettered access to humanitarian access to seven million people that have been under siege for more than a year now. They also want um, an international media and human rights organizations to be granted access to Tigray region so that they could monitor the human rights abuses that are that continued happening. Uh, with, with, with the involvement of the Ethiopian army and the Eritrean army. Uh, they also want the withdrawal of Eritrean troops from Tigray. What the federal government wanted so far has not been articulated. So we are waiting for, uh, for, for, for this to come up uh, within the next few, few days. And Sadali, could you also explain, put this in historical context, what is the nature of the relationship of uh, the region of Tigray with the central government uh, in uh, Addis Ababa, and what led to the kind of fracture uh, that has produced this absolutely devastating war? Yeah, historically, Tigray has always been um, a place where the people hold uh, the right to self-administer so dear to themselves. This is the third time um, that there is an uprising by the Tigrayan people against an attempt by the central government uh, of an Ethiopian state to govern and rule that province. Historically, they have always been uh, very much protective of their right to self-administer. So this is the, the relationship. But for the last 30 years, Tigrayans were also uh, major power holders in the center. Uh, so to say, the last reconfiguration of the Ethiopian state happened under their watch together with other allies from, from the country. And they have been able to live in a relative peace for the last 30 years. So to say, this fight with, with, a, with a central government on asserting their right to self-administer had a lull of 30 years. We're back to that, that historic territory where an Ethiopian central government still wanted to control Tigray and Tigrayan people. So that's why the resistance um, of, of, of the people of Tigray in pushing back against the attempts of, of the federal government or the central government uh, that has led to this latest uprising or a resistance by the Tigrayan people. Politically, uh, it has a root, you know, the, 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 the conflict started initially with a rupture in the ruling party itself. The current government that is administering the Ethiopian um, uh, federal government, uh, led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, uh, was part and parcel of the government that were uh, together in, in the EPRDF regime that were governing Ethiopia for the last 30 years. Uh, with a change in the political dynamics at the center, that fracture began to happen between the TPLF, TPLF is the party that's administering Tigray, and the prime minister's party. So this fracture, this political fracture that we have seen initially led to that, uh, that, that, that conflict in Tigray. But the dynamics of the conflict has since changed. You know, the prime minister initially said that he wanted to do law enforcement. What he wanted to do is apprehend a few leadership of the TPLF uh, party in Tigray. They needed to intervene there because they have attacked uh, an army command center that is located in Tigray. So initially, the purpose of this war was framed as a law enforcement by the federal government in containing, you know, the, the TPLF leaders in Tigray. 
But the sheer brutality of, of this conduct has turned the war into a resistance by the Tigran people against the federal government because the federal government had invited a foreign army, Eritrean forces, to join it, which are uh, to join it in Tigray. And it was no law enforcement. It was a war against everything that Tigray has. It was a war against Tigray's peasantry, its agriculture, its education. It was a war against its women. And so the people initially were given it a benefit of the doubt for the federal government's attempt to enforce law enforcement in the region had risen up. Uh, they just realized that this is not a war against TPLF. This was a war against everything Tigray is. And so the, the dynamics of the war has evolved the last two years into becoming one that the Tigrayan people are actually rising up against the Ethiopian state. And this is why the war has been complicated for two reasons. One, it has changed, the dynamics has changed. And two, there was a, a misunderstanding on how to solve this. Everybody understood this one. This was a power struggle between former allies in the ruling party of the EPRDF. No, it was not. Initially, it began like that, but it became a, a, a war of survival for the Tigrayans and a war of control for the federal government into governing Tigray. And that's why we have seen the world failing in its attempt to solve this problem. And let's remember, the Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Abi, uh, Abi Ahmed won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. Um, there is another conflict that is happening right now uh, in the region of Oromia in Ethiopia. Can you talk about whether it is connected uh, to Tigray, how it is connected? Um, the Associated Press reporting drone strikes in Oromia killed several dozen civilians last week, the stronghold of the rebel Oroma Liberation. Army um, came amidst intensified fighting between federal forces and the outlawed, outlawed group. Can you talk about what's happening there? Emmy, the war in Oromia uh, began actually before the war in Tigray, um, and there has been little coverage about it. Um, it started in 20, 2019, a year, barely a year after Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power, and at the same time when he was actually getting an award for, for the Nobel Peace Prize Award. But there was little attention to it. Um, it, it is, again, a war um, of visions. Uh, it, you know, the same way that uh, the prime minister is facing resistance in Tigray today about the nature and style of the kind of governance that he wants to ship out of the Ethiopian state, he's facing that resistance in Oromia. So the Oromo Liberation Army was formerly associated with a political group called Oromo Liberation Front. But after the Oromo Liberation Front came into Ethiopia following the prime minister's sort of liberalization of the political space, the Oromo Liberation Army broke apart with the with its mother party. And they said, no, we're going to continue the resistance because we don't see, we, you know, the way we see the prime minister trying to reconfigure the Ethiopian state is against the, you know, half a century struggle of the Oromo people. So we will be continuing our fight. So the war in Oromia started um, barely a year after Prime Minister Abiy came, but not enough attention was given to it. And now it's really going um, deep into many parts of Oromia. Actually, by the government's own admission, 
many parts in that in, in, in Oromia regional state, which is the largest regional state in Ethiopia, is out of the control of the federal government and also the regional government. And they are under the control of uh, the liberation army, of the, the Oromo liberation army, particularly western and southern parts of Oromia. And so the government, realizing that its, uh, its armed combatants are running stretched, you know, because of the war in Tigray, it has resorted into that intensification of drone attacks particularly the last two weeks. Um, according to opposition figures, there are more than six drone attacks uh, that were conducted by the federal government and more than 120 days casualties of civilians. So this war that's happening in Oromia is happening in the shadow of the war in Tigray. And the purpose is a fight against centralized rule that the prime minister favors in his administration. Uh, it's, it, it, it borrows the same kind of narrative with the war that's happening it's a pushback against the, against the centralized rule in the country. Um, but it's one something that nobody's paying attention to. And uh, uh, it's not a part of this peace talk negotiation in, in South Africa as well. And Tizari, just as uh, before we end, uh, what is the ultimate aim of the TPLF? Are the demands now likely to be uh, calls for a referendum on independence? Is, is Tigray even interested at this point, given the brutality of this war, uh, uh, rema of remaining uh, part of, of Ethiopia, and also um, the territorial issues between Ethiopia and, and Tigray now? Well, you know, um, the TPLF as a party uh, is, among other Tigran political parties, I would say, is one of the most pro-Ethiopian political party. Um, I don't think they will be pushing for a referendum on their own, but the idea of referendum is enshrined in Ethiopian constitution, Article 39. So if the Tigran people want TPLF, can do nothing about it. Uh, it's the wish and determination of the Tigran people. At the moment, what the TPLF as a governing party in, the, in Tigray want from, from the repeated statements and all these things, they want a sovereign regional state of Tigray. They want the encroachment by the federal government to end. They want their self-administration restored. They want Eritrean forces, which are there as an ally of the prime minister, to be withdrawn from the sovereign territory of Tigray. And so they can have the self-administration, self-rule of, of the Tigran people um, guaranteed according to the constitution. The federal government interprets this one as a power grab by the TPLF. Uh, the power grab contest has ended in 2018 when the TPLF gave way to the prime minister himself and voted 100% for him. They give way for that. But the federal government always has always been suspicious that they want to return back to the center to, to, to grab power again. I don't think that's what they want. What they want is that uh, an independent uh, self-rule system in Tigray, whereby the people of Tigray can have a say on their destiny. But if the people of Tigray want to invoke Article 39 and want to go for a referendum of cessation, it is enshrined in the, in the Constitution. It's their constitutional right, and TPLF cannot stop that. Uh, but so far, I don't think TPLF will be taking the lead in having Article 39 invoked. Of the, all the parties that are functioning in Tigray, it's the most pro-Ethiopian party in my assessment. 
And that's that's uh, what's at stake. The territorial integrity issue there has been compromised by none other than the ruling party itself, the federal government, which has invited a foreign army to come and pillage and, and rip and, uh, and kill and occupy the territorial uh, independence of the Ethiopian state. Tigray, remember, is still a part of the Ethiopian state. So an occupation by Eritrea should be considered as an occupation of the Ethiopian sovereign state. But Eritrea is there with a, an explicit support of the federal government, which makes it a treason, by the way, Emmy, according to the constitution. And so this is the, what the, the dynamics in play at the moment. So Donna, um, we have 10 seconds. You know, um, I think, you know, to conclude this one, at the moment, it's better that we focus on um, the hopes that we are pinning in this peace talk negotiation. The hopes is that they will be agreeing on a, on a cessation of hostilities, which would pave ways for access to humanitarian and lifting the siege, a medieval era siege that has been imposed on Tigray. No communication, no banking, no road, nothing. It's seven million people completely sealed off. And so we need that to be lifted. For that to happen, a cessation of hostilities is a must to have. And so we hope that the talks in South Africa would guarantee so that people in Tigray can be um, having access to their own bank, uh, having access to telecommunication. So, Lemma, we want to thank you very much for being with us, um, journalist and founder of the Ada Standard English Language Monthly Magazine in Ethiopia, speaking to us from Germany. Thank you so much. Next up, we talk about why hospitals are filling up around the country with children and infants with RSV. Stay with us. The Five Stair Steps. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Public health experts are warning of a triple-demic of respiratory illness this winter, an increase in COVID cases in early flu season, and— we look at the surge of cases of this uh, sickness among children called RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus. Some hospitals in the U.S. already fill to capacity. RSV starts with mild cold symptoms, can lead to pneumonia, bronchiolitis, and very young children can be life-threatening in infants. For more, we're joined by a pediatrician in Houston, Dr. Christrina Probst. Um, welcome to Democracy Now!, Dr. Probst. Can you explain why this is happening now, why this surge um, in the United States? Well, there are several theories as to why we are currently experiencing this very early surge in respiratory syncytial virus uh, and in influenza. One of the theories is that there has been an immunity gap created uh, due to the pandemic. So when the pandemic hit, of course, everyone was scrambling to figure out how to stay safe and how to avoid infection uh, with a virus that causes COVID-19. 
Uh, among the features that um, people isolated as, as, as noting to be effective were masking, isolation, hand hygiene, um, some of the common sense precautions to avoid a highly contagious viral respiratory pathogen. Uh, so while those are certainly effective and have been proven effective to help uh, prevent the spread of COVID-19. They also helped prevent the spread of other viral pathogens. So RSV, influenza, rhinovirus, parainfluenza virus, all of these other seasonal viruses uh, that are endemic really globally were suppressed. And so there is some thought that number one, those precautions that so effectively suppressed all of uh, those other respiratory viral pathogens. Um, once those precautions were relaxed, uh, as we're seeing now, people are masking much less often. Um, uh, there is much less social distancing. People are back at work, back in school, in person. That uh, now those viruses are, to some extent, coming back with a vengeance. And Dr. Prost, of course, this uh, RSV, uh, as we mentioned, is the most dangerous for infants. Could you explain what the signs are? I mean, I myself have witnessed at very close uh, uh, proximity uh, this uh, virus in an infant below the age of three months. It's very difficult to distinguish RSV from other respiratory uh, uh, illnesses, a cold or a cough. How would you? That's true. Mm -hmm. And um, so for most uh, children and even for most adults, uh, RSV begins as an upper respiratory illness. So cold-like symptoms, um, nasal congestion, some sneezing, watery eyes. The problem is for infants, for the immunocompromised, for the elderly as well, uh, and notably for premature infants, infants under the age of six months, or uh, infants and children who have congenital heart disease disease or immunocompromised or have pulmonary conditions, um, those folks are particularly vulnerable to getting lower respiratory illness from RSV. And by lower respiratory illness, in babies, we're referring to bronchiolitis, which is an inflammation of the lower, small airways, and even pneumonia. Uh, so those are the children we worry about the most, and those are the children who are driving this um, tremendous uptick in hospitalizations currently. We only have a minute, but what can parents do to, um, oh, for, to prevent their babies from getting this illness? The most important thing I would say is, number one, um, to keep your children safe and avoid being around a lot of other crowds uh, and avoid being around other ill people. So notably, that is for the most uh, vulnerable population, for babies, for former premature infants. Uh, if you have a baby under the age of six months, um, that is now is not a time to go out to the mall with that baby or to be around a lot of people in a crowd environment. Um, hand washing, making sure your children's are, children are up to date on their vaccines, uh, including their influenza and their COVID vaccine. Uh, Co-infection is becoming more of an issue. So it is really important to take these common sense precautions to keep children safe and really to keep our healthcare system afloat at this point. 
Dr. Christina Probst, we thank you so much for being with us, a pediatrician in Houston, Texas. Tune in on November 8th for our three-hour election night special. We'll begin broadcasting live starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! currently accepting applications for a video news production fellowship and a people and culture manager. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks for joining us.